0: This conversation was recorded live on stage at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, a weekend of challenging, inspiring and robust discussions with powerful speakers from around the world. Good afternoon. My name's Rebecca Huntley. Welcome to the Festival of Dangerous Ideas and to this session, the bill is due. I would like to start the session with an acknowledgement of country and acknowledge that we meet today on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to their elders past and present and to any members of the Gadigal people here today. This is going to be a great session. I'll talk a little bit about Das in a minute. I met him about six years ago. We were both panel members on Q&A. He was the, funniest, cleverest guy in the room. We were on the panel with Barnaby Joyce. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Actually, Barnaby was funny, but not intentionally. (laughs) Uh. Um, Just before I talk about Das, I want people to know that uh, you can tweet this session, um, hashtag FOTI, or you can just pay attention to the speaker who will have lots of interesting things to say. I do encourage you to keep your phones on silent. Um, The session is being recorded. That includes audience questions, so I'll be gesturing to the microphone and chairing that session quite strictly, questions rather than comments, and Das will be uh, signing copies of his extraordinary book, A Banquet of Consequences, after the session. Uh, I think most of you are here not just because you're interested in the topic but because you know the speaker. He's a financier with over 35 years' experience. He's given me a little bit of paper about to t- about how I should talk to him about him to you, so here we go. He told me that he didn't mind what I called him or described him as. He has been called just about everything possible, most of it inaccurate, not printable or nice. <laughs> I did ask him whether he should describe, I should describe him as an expert and he told me that physicist Niels Bohr defines an expert as someone who has made every mistake possible in his field. On that basis, he feels he is qualified. (laughs) Uh, As many of you know, DAS presciently anticipated many aspects of the global financial crisis in 2006. In 2014, Bloomberg nominated him as one of the 50 most influential financial thinkers in the world and he is certainly the most extraordinary communicator on issues about finance and the economy. He was featured in Charles Ferguson's 2010 Oscar-winning documentary, Inside Job. He's the author of several works of risk manage- on risk management. I have not read them, uh, but he is the author of books I have got at home and some I've read, Traders, Guns and Money and Extreme Money, and his latest book, A Banquet of Consequences, Have We Consumed Our Own Future, is not a recipe book. He said that if had been, he might have sold 20 copies rather than 10. It is an <laughs> extraordinary book about the economy and the challenges that face us. Please welcome him to the stage.
1: Can I have my speech?
0: Okay, we're getting there, right? All right. It's here, it's here, it's here, it's here, it's here. here. You've got the first page. Have I got the first page?
1: (laughs) Never trust an MC. blue marble, symbol of Earth's isolation and the emptiness of space, its fragility, our vulnerability. As William Butler Yeats understood, there is another world, but it is in this one. Today, the world faces, we face, several concurrent challenges. First, economic and financial problems, a toxic combination of debt, low growth, and low inflation. Second, resource constraints, especially water, food, and energy. And third, environmental stresses. These are compounded by demographics, inequality, and exclusion. There are rising geopolitical tensions. Progress, especially in Western democracies, is now mindless consumerism. For the last 30 years, the world has relied on an unparalleled orgy of borrowing to stoke the economic engines. Progress is based on profligate use of scarce, often non-renewable, resources, difficult to reverse environmental changes. It is based on exploitation of each other, Stealing from tomorrow. In 1954, German economist E.F. Schumacher identified the trajectory. Mankind has existed for many thousands of years and has always lived off income. Only in the last hundred years has man forcibly broken into nature's larder and is now emptying it out at breathtaking speed, which increases from year to year. We have, our leaders tell us, never had it so good. Our future, they tell us, will be even better, more exciting. They lie. Dealing with the problems requires a coordinated, considered, and equitable response. This requires trust, trust among people, trust in leaders, trust in institutions, and trust between nations. But trust is eroded by lies. Politicians, it may surprise you, lie. Their currency is higher living standards, a brighter, more prosperous future, painless solutions to every problem, whatever the ultimate cost. As Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's economic program floundered, Economy Minister Akira Amari told reporters there was a robust recovery, although the robustness was a bit weak. Jean-Claude Juncker, the head of the European Commission, confessed that when the situation becomes serious, it's simply necessary to lie. Professionals lie. They're deeply compromised, tied to a system that guarantees them employment and influence. It is not in their interest to reveal the real outlook, Bad news is bad for business, bad news is bad for careers. Policymakers confirmed John Maynard Keynes's fear that confusion of thought and feeling leads to confusion of speech. In March 2014, at her first press conference as the US Federal Reserve Chairman, Janet Yellen stated that interest rates would not increase for a considerable time, driving semantic speculations about the exact meaning of considerable. In December 2014, the Fed announced that they would be patient. In February 2015, Yellen abandoned patient, warning that this did not mean that the Fed would be impatient. Recently, she said that rates would be increased so they could be cut later. In July 2012, President of the European Central Bank, Mario Draghi, saved the Euro and the Eurozone by announcing that he would do whatever it takes. Since that time, Dr. Draghi has been honing and repeating the same line. In October 2013, he was ready to consider all available instruments. A message repeated in November, and again in December 2013. In January 2014, he stated that he would take further decisive action, if required. In February and March 2014, he again vowed to take further decisive action, if required. In April 2014 and May 2014, the European Central Bank undertook to act swiftly, if required. Today, Dr. Draghi is reciting 2012. We must do what we must. Leaked transcripts of private interviews with former U.S. Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner revealed that Dr. Draghi had no actual plan, (laughs) making it up as he went along. Former Federal Reserve Board Vice Chairman Alan Blinder, with admirable honesty, admitted that the last duty of a central banker is to tell the public the truth. Scientists exploit politicians' childlike faith in technology that they barely understand. Everybody forgets that much of our current problems, environmental damage and pollution, are actually the unintended consequences of technology. Techno-fantasies cater To political desperation, geoengineering schemes propose placing giant solar reflectors in space to reduce the amount of sunlight reaching the earth. These technologies are currently unproven and uneconomic. They have side effects. Their attraction is obvious. They offer a painless fix. Real solutions require real reductions in greenhouse gas emissions. That is costly. That would reduce living standards. The media lies, accentuating the positive. Embedded in politics and business, fearing loss of revenues and privileged access to decision-makers, they, for the most part, uncritically transmit the official view. The deaf transcribe the speech of the dumb, who convey the eyewitness accounts of the blind. Facts are too depressing. Truth has been replaced by what comedian Stephen Colbert termed, truthiness. (laughs) These are things which are not true. These are things one wishes were true. Our desperate needs, our unrealistic expectations, mean that we can no longer distinguish between what is real and what is not. The priority is to maintain the appearance of normality, to engender confidence. The economy is strong, all that is needed is a little bit more debt, a little bit more printed money, a little lower interest rates, a little lower currency. Technology and the market will solve the problems of growth, resources, and poverty, as well as male pattern baldness and double chins. <laughs> Another summit will fix climate change. Everybody and everything perpetuates lies. of emergency policies following the global financial crisis have not created a sustainable recovery. There have been over 666 interest rate cuts globally since 2008. Over 18 trillion American dollars of cash has been created by central banks, enough to buy every single person on the planet a large screen plasma television set. Policy tools are now exhausted. They possess the potency of shamanic rain dancers. Governments have turned to financial repression, higher taxes and reductions in the level of state benefits or public services. The changes are implemented by stealth. There is means testing or co-payment schemes There are user-pay surcharges and special levies. The eligibility age for pensions is delayed. Cost of living adjustments are deferred. As Louis XIV's Minister of Finance, Jean Baptiste Colbert, knew, the art of taxation consists in so plucking the goose as to get the most feathers with the least hissing. (laughs) Policymakers manipulate interest rates. They kept below the true inflation rate to allow over-indebted borrowers to maintain unsustainably high levels of debt. Increasingly, zero interest rate policy has given way to negative interest rate policy. You now pay the bank to deposit money. German savers call it punishment interest or the wrath of Draghi a reference to the negative interest rates imposed by the European Central Bank. It is a tax on savings. The state confiscates your money. Policymakers now display unprecedented creativity. They propose helicopter drops of money. The Central Bank prints cash and distributes it to the public to stimulate the economy. Another suggestion is for nationwide treasure hunts for $1 million caches hidden across the country. Finders would be obliged to spend the money quickly. There will be time-limited money. You must spend your savings or lose these funds. Japan has the highest level of government debt in the world. It spends a quarter of its taxes on interest payments. The solution? Replace the existing borrowings with instruments that pay no interest and do not pay back your principal. The instrument is ingenious, but worthless to savers holding them. There are proposals for a dead jubilee drawing on the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. Existing debt will be forgiven to boost economic activity. Given that one person's debt is another person's savings, it would cancel the liability of the borrower, but also eliminate savings. The debt jubilee's veneer of morality and wealth redistribution is fake. It rewards those who have taken out the largest loans, not the usual candidates of welfare. There are proposals to eliminate physical cash altogether. It will, proponents argue, prevent tax avoidance, crime, terrorism, as well as increase efficiency and lower costs. It will improve hygiene, preventing transmission of diseases. But eliminating cash also eliminates freedom, privacy, and anonymity. It gives control to governments of individual savings. It enables control over lives. In a speech on the 18th of September 2015, the Bank of England's chief economist, Andrew Haldane, outlined the real reason. In the coming recession, governments will need to cut already very low interest rates to very negative numbers. Perhaps to minus 4 to 5%. Eliminating physical money is necessary to prevent people escaping this impost by shifting their savings into banknotes. Eliminating cash will enable governments to more easily seize their citizens' savings. Developed countries are now trapped. They cannot accept the pain of debt reduction. They will not accept reduction of living standards. They must rely on fanciful financial engineering to maintain the illusion of stability. Magical thinking is now official policy. Bank of Japan's governor, Haruhiko Koruda, cited Peter Pan. The moment you doubt whether you can fly, you cease forever to be able to do it. What we need now is a positive attitude and conviction. One member of the European Central Bank rejected that options were limited because central bankers are magic people. (laughs) Raghuram Rajan, head of India's Central Bank, dissented. Is the advent of helicopter money going to result in everybody going out and spending? as though there is no tomorrow when they get a cheque? Or are they going to ask, what kind of world are we in when the central bank prints money and throws it out the window? Financial repression is accompanied by political repression. As the problems mount and solutions prove elusive, leaders find democratic processes inconvenient. Europe, A cradle of democracy leads the way. Matteo Renzi is the third successive Italian prime minister not directly elected by voters. In February 2015, President Francois Hollande invoked a rarely used article in the French constitution to pass laws without a parliamentary vote. Facing a revolt from its own members, the government was unsure of its ability to command a majority to pass legislation. Commitments are repeatedly broken. Spanish Prime Minister Rajoy claimed that reality prevented him from keeping his electoral promises. Pension cuts were imposed by reality. Reality required larger budget deficits. On the 17th of May 2016, prior to the Spanish election, he promised tax cuts. On 12th of July 2016, after the election, he increased taxes. Who knows what reality will dictate in the future? European Commission President jean Claude Juncker described the process of European Union decision-making. If it is a yes, then we will say, on we go. And if it is a no, we will say, we continue. Created to prevent fascism, the European Union has itself become profoundly anti-democratic. The lack of political choice means rules by alternating oligarchies. John Maynard Keynes saw elections in his time as a choice between two equally undistinguished camps. There was a stupid party, conservative, hereditary, defensive, and deeply bigoted. Keynes saw them as incapable of even identifying their own best interests, unable to distinguish between necessary measures for safeguarding capitalism and what they called Bolshevism. There was the silly party, instinctively resentful and anti elitist. They were suspicious of any profit motivated activities which created wealth, seeing it as implacably contrary to social justice. Keynes identified sensible elements of the sillies, who were inevitably outflanked by catastrophists who believed that capitalism was violently unstable and replaceable by a utopia that they were unable to describe. Observing the complex society of ants, entomologists have concluded that socialism works. Political scientists just had the wrong species. (laughs) (laughs) Douglas Adams warned that people who most want to rule people are ipso facto those least suited to do it. One US presidential candidate was ridiculed as having a third-rate mind that he couldn't make up. The description fits most of our representatives. If leadership is, as John Kenneth Galbraith believed, the willingness to confront unequivocally the major anxiety of their people in their time, then today's politicians are not leaders. Their approach is different. There goes the crowd. I must get in front of them, for I am their leader. There are no policies, just tweetable slogans. Modern politicians believe if you are explaining, then you are losing. Leaders triangulate, selecting positions that maximize popularity and support. They use wedge politics to divide opponents in the electorate, polarizing opinion along racial, regional, or other demographic lines for political advantage. But society depends upon shared purpose and common identity. It relies on a network of bonds. In one of his Birmingham jail letters, Martin Luther King wrote that modern societies are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. Whatever affects one directly, affects all indirectly. But today, in developed nations, powerful alliances determine policies, benefiting their constituencies, but leaving large costs to be borne by the rest of the population. Over time, such groups have accumulated power, burdening and ultimately paralyzing the system. They, their paid lobbyists and ideologically partisan think tanks, now make change impossible. Policymakers vacillate about the correct solution. They embrace fake strategies unlikely to accomplish anything significant or lasting. There is compromise defined by Edward Cecil as an agreement between two people to do what both agree is wrong. Leaders prefer to try to do the wrong thing right rather than doing the right thing wrong. Politicians believe ordinary people are gullible. We can be made to understand what they want us to understand. They know that great masses of people will fall more easily victim to a great lie than a small one. They flatter the electorate, usually at election times, or crush them, for all others. It is bread and circuses. Be everything you can be, or a new smartphone every year for everybody has replaced a chicken in every pot. Circuses, they include war, sports, scandal, celebrity, reality TV, and 24-7 news. Which converts every event, whether important or trivial, into an adversarial blood sport or a soap opera. Today, large portions of the population face precarious employment, stagnant wages, falling home ownership, and no prospect of retirement. They fear the future, they're uncertain of identity, they feel humiliated and ignored. They are angry at meaningless, condescending political rituals and clichés. But democracies and advanced economies have adjusted to the existence of these aggrieved voters. Popular rage about poverty, about lack of opportunity, about inequality is channelled. A minority is still a minority, no matter how angry, no matter how dramatic, it's amateur theatrics. In the end, mainstream politicians believe that they will maintain power if necessary by a grand coalition between the major parties. If the odd outsider gains power, they will be seduced or suborned until they betray their supporters. Britain's decision to leave the European Union was summarised with stunning simplicity by one voter. If you've got money, you vote in. If you haven't got money, you vote out. The reaction to Brexit was revealing. A complex question had been reduced to absurd simplicity resulting in Russian roulette for republics. A simple majority of those who voted was too low a bar. Key decisions should be left to informed experts. (laughs) Only qualified people should be allowed to vote. The result should also coincide with what ought to happen. As Joseph Stalin pointed out, it's not the voting but the counting, that is important. (laughs) Ordinary people are understandably cynical and disengaged. Like Bernard Baruch, they know those who mind don't matter, and those who matter don't mind. But we ignore history at our peril, In the Great Depression, the destruction of the middle classes was crucial to the rise of extremism. Disaffected ordinary people who had lost their jobs, savings, and hope became resentful, turning to populist demagogues for salvation. It is useful to remember that civilization is a fragile construct that only temporarily covers the savage furies that lurk beneath the surface. There is a striking similarity between our problems. Economic growth and wealth is based on borrowed money. It accelerates consumption as debt is used to purchase something today against the uncertain promise of paying it back in the future. Debt allows society to borrow from tomorrow. Pollution creates changes in the environment which are only evident in the future and are difficult to reverse. Underpriced, finite resources are wantonly utilised without proper concern about conservation for future use. Inequality creates social problems which only appear later. In each case, society borrows from and pushes problems into the future. Current growth, short-term profits, and higher living standards, for some, are pursued at the expense of costs, which are not evident immediately but will emerge later. The problems are slow-acting, they only manifest themselves over time, often beyond individual lifespans. This lack of immediate effect creates our false sense of security. It enables us to ignore the problems so we can extend and pretend, kick the can down the road. But this only shifts the responsibility onto others, especially future generations. By postponing the inevitable, the adjustment becomes larger and more painful. There is now little room for economic maneuver. Resource constraints and environmental problems are pressing. Social division and mistrust of institutions is rampant. A slow controlled correction of the financial, economic, resource, environmental, and social excesses now would be serious, but manageable. If changes are not made, then the forced correction will be dramatic and violent. During the last half century, each of our problems have increased in severity. Our new crisis will be like a virulent infection attacking a body whose immune system is already compromised. We are all deeply compromised. We have become socially apathetic, infantile, indifferent. We do not question the basis of our prosperity. We do not ask whether our living standards are financially, environmentally, or socially sustainable. We accept our right to entitlements without questioning who will ultimately pay for them. We do not complain as we get richer, as our houses and our investments rise in value. We ignore the suffering of workers in an emerging nation whose poorly paid and dangerous work provides us with cheap goods. We avert our eyes from the disenfranchised and relegate them to the margins of our society. We are gripped by a collective amnesia. Our acquiescence is without limits. Since the late 1970s, the very people whose living standards were being driven downward supported the political promoters and vested interests whose policies resulted in an upward redistribution of wealth. Following the 9-11 attacks, we acquiesced in an unprecedented loss of privacy and civil liberties. George Orwell's 1984 depicts a future where information is suppressed, truth concealed, and the population subjugated. Aldous Huxley's Brave New World portrays a debased population anesthetized by a culture of superficial entertainment who are incapable of critical thought and uninterested in the truth. Soma, a fictional pleasure drug, distracts people from realising that there's actually something very wrong, that the citizens of the world state are enslaved. Orwell and Huxley were writing about us. We rationalize everything endlessly, we delude ourselves into believing that to question the status quo is to risk everything, our jobs, our wealth, our daily lives, our future. Graffiti artist Banksy portrays humanity in unflattering terms. We cannot do anything in the world until capitalism crumbles. In the meantime, we should all go shopping to console ourselves. It is not that we don't know. It is that we have developed denial into an art form. We will not take necessary corrective measures because others may not do the same. We're willing to allow problems to get so bad that we can argue that we are helpless to do anything or that it is simply too late. To paraphrase Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the permanent lie has become the only safe form of existence. We face this, our greatest crisis, within the words of biologist E.O. Wilson, Paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and delusions about our godlike technology. The problems facing us today are not capable of being solved by our central beliefs. Unlimited economic growth, boundless technical progress, and unrestrained individual autonomy. In a fastian bargain, we mortgage the future for present prosperity. We are now remortgaging it for a precarious and short-lived stability. But the world cannot, postpone permanently, dealing with these challenges. There is a painting by Paul Clay, Angelus Novus. Philosopher Walter Benjamin was greatly moved by the image. The angel looks as though he's about to move away from something he's fixedly contemplating. His eyes are staring, his mouth is open, his wings are spread. This is how one pictures the angel of history. His face is turned towards the past, Where we perceive a chain of events, he sees one single catastrophe which keeps piling wreckage and hurls it in front of his feet. The angel would like to stay, awaken the dead and make whole what has been smashed. But a storm is blowing in from paradise. It has got caught in his wings with such a violence that the angel can no longer close them. The storm irresistibly propels him into the future to which his back is turned while the pile of debris before him grows skywards. This storm is what we call progress. Let us stop pretending. Without honesty, there can be no solution. Face the facts. Truth does not depend upon our ability to stomach it. There are no easy, painless answers. Stop lying to ourselves. Change. Act. Change. Now. As Winston Churchill warned, when facing another existential crisis, the era of procrastination, of half measures, of soothing and baffling expedients, of delays, is coming to its close. We are entering our period of consequences. How?
0: There's an opportunity now for questions, uh, Mike one and mic two, if you want to make your way down and ask a question, you're very welcome, and somebody's dying to ask a question at mic two. Is that, can we have the house lights up so we'll be able to see the gentleman? And a question, please. Yes, of course. Um, thanks very much. I think you did a really
1: good job of identifying, I guess, the issues that are facing our world today and the bankruptcy of policy ideas and I guess in general ideas we don't seem to have a solution. I'd be really interested to hear from you what you think in an economic sense we should be doing policy-wise, globally, in different countries. You you really highlighted the problem really well. What do we need to do? What do you think we need to do? Najeef Mahfouz once said that if you give the correct answers, you're clever. If you ask the correct questions, you have wisdom. I don't think there is one answer to any of this, but I can tell you what it's going to require. It's going to require root and branch change in our society and in our economies. Living standards will have to fall by between 30 and 50% globally. And the way we manage our economies and particularly the way we manage our politics will have to change. I'll give you a very concrete example. Australia will have to get rid of at least one level of government. You will have to accept that you can't get endless lives from medical technology. You have to accept that there is a limit to the trade-off between how long you can live, the cost of keeping you alive. You'll have to accept that not everybody can be everything. And those are social changes that will have to come. But like an alcoholic, we will only make those changes when we are lying sodden in the gutter. And I hope at the time that occurs that there is still time left in an ecological and in a environmental sense for us to make those changes. And it, I'm not sure that we have that much time left. Okay.
0: Thank, thank, thank you. you. Thank you for your question. <laughs>
1: Well, that should take care of questions. Nobody's going to be game to ask a question (laughs) after
0: that. Is there another question? Ah, we can go and have a drink now, No, no. So, Das, I have a question for you. Um, You're right that we all need to make extraordinary changes to kind of avert the kinds of things you've talked about. Uh, But what does this mean for how we live today, how we might walk out of this room? Because it's easy to despair because we would have to, it would require a kind of a immediate and Herculean effort on the part of the political class and you probably know the people that run the economy better than most people in this room. So I suppose the question I come away from is how do I live?
1: Okay, Uh, Let me tell you how change is achieved. Iceland, which is one of my favourite countries on earth, had an economic crisis on large proportions. So how do they go about fixing it? Well, pretty much every citizen now, you have to remember, there's only 300,000 of the little Icelandic buggers. (laughs) (laughs) They literally went and barricaded the politicians into the Parliament House, which is not much bigger than the Opera House, actually much smaller, actually, and banged on pots and pans until they all resigned because they were in terror of being lynched Then they elected a new government and the government spent a lot of time talking to just about everybody they could, trying to understand what they felt, but also saying, well, we have to do these things, and how do we share the pain? So why don't you, if you really want to do something, why don't you organise your entire street and go to your local member of parliament's surgeries every day for the next year that you can, and harangue him with a list of issues, saying, this is my list, I want you to come back in a month and tell me what you've done about any of these things. And if you don't, at the next election, I will personally tire and feather you and chase you up and down the street and see what that does for your publicity. Unless you're willing to do something like that, nothing will happen. People don't change because you tell them to change. People change because you take pitchforks and point it in their general direction. Okay? So, you want to change, you have to do those things. And then you've got to actually look at your neighbours, you've got to look at everybody else around you, and you've got to say, okay, I have this, he has that. We're all going to have less. How do you actually share the pain? In Iceland, you can't actually make changes which assumes that somebody out there is going to get hurt because, It's a very incestuous country. They're all related to each other. So, you know, you know each other. And it's very difficult to get somebody and hurt somebody when you know them. So that's the level at which you're going to actually have to operate. None of this, we vote once every four four years or three years or whatever, then say things like, yeah, aren't they terrible? Aren't they terrible, Gladys? Aren't they terrible, those people
0: in Canberra?
1: That's not democracy.
0: That's whining. That's an Australian pastime. (laughs) Don't take it away. It's one of the most endearing things. They already took away the the dog races. What are we going to do? Number two, if we can't whine, what are we going to do on the weekend? Number Um, two.
2: Yeah, I think you just started to touch on what I wanted to ask with your pitchforks and tyre and feathers. um, (laughs) uh, Exactly how do we go about having this sort of... Um, revolution non-violently or can we at all because I think we have this idea that we're an educated society now and we can we're better than that or something or other that seems to be the mood and you said we've become an apathetic society and we just deal with what we've got but can it actually be done non-violently or is violence necessary in your opinion
0: that's a very good question
1: Do you want the politically correct answer or the politically incorrect answer? (laughs) Okay, I'll tell you what you do. I come from a country which pretty much got independence from the British by pretty much non-violent means. And Mahatma Gandhi is well-remembered for his non-violent protests, and that works up to a point. But what most people don't really understand, because most of Indian history is written by foreigners, is that that's not what convinced the British to leave. The British left mainly because of economics. They just couldn't afford to keep India, number one. And number two, I'm a Bengali. I'm not really Indian. And there was a Bengali man called Shabash Chandra Bush. He sided with the Japanese, and he raised a free Indian army. I mean, he was very naive. He believed the Japanese were going to give India freedom, which was not going to be the case. But he terrified the British. So I suspect the correct answer is you have to do it non-violently, but make sure that people understand that if you don't get what you're going to get non-violently, there are other options.
0: So the power of threat as well as pragmatism, right? It was pragmatic for them to get out of India for economic reasons, but they're also a bit scared.
1: Politicians are the most easily manipulated people because they're like two-year-olds. They have short attention spans, they throw temper tantrums, they're easily satisfied, and they're very easily distracted. So if you give them the right incentive structures, it'll work. <laughs> I think it's a question as well.
0: Thank you very much for your question. Over here.
2: Um, yeah, I, I'm an economist. I go along with... My pretty... sympathies. No, 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 no. I go, along, I go along with what you say because I think you're probably... But let me just ask the following mainstream economics definitely you know that's a bit it doesn't work right you've you've actually talked about how a lot of a lot of this stuff the simplistic stuff but some of the more complex things there are things like a Pro- Piketty's progressive wealth tax there's ideas like the progressive consumption tax as opposed to a sales the gst there are things like the carbon tax that we had, we had a mining tax, which was probably, you know, so economists, some, what do you think of that, you know, forgetting about the simplistic Friedmanite economics and the neoclassical stuff, What do you have any time for that other style of economics, the inefficient market-type stuff? What what do you think
1: of that? Generally, I read economics for comedy, but that's a different question. (laughs) But the most important thing is, actually, Keynes once said that he was hoping that economics would ultimately be a profession somewhat more elevated than it was in his day to something according... About the dentist, I think, was the standard he used. I think it's very sensible, but I think you've got to go back a stage. I think there's fundamental questions. Economics is completely irrelevant to the real questions that we ask. It's what kind of society do you want to live in? You know, how do we want to redistribute wealth, or do we want to redistribute wealth at all? Those are open questions, and I have views on them, but I'm sure other people have different views on them. Economics is a means to achieving some of those in different ways. So it's basically you've got to make those decisions. And the problem is we have now raised economics to the point where we have an economy, but we don't have a society. And you can't do that. You start, as the Icelandic people did, saying what kind of society are we and what sacrifices do we have to meet? The economics follows from that. Economics does not make those decisions for you. And that is what I find most objectionable about economists, other than the fact that they think they're better than they are, that they basically assume they've made the assumptions of what is good and then they are try to implement them when basically they should go and actually work out what it is that everybody wants. I'll give you a very good example of that. Andrew Haldane, who I mention in, uh, in the talk, I was telling Rebecca, went to the north of England. Now, Andrew Haldane is an eminently decent man. He went to the north of England to explain how the British economy was doing really well. So he went with all these charts of showing, you know, growth is up, unemployment is down, industrial production is up. The man nearly got lynched. You know, his audience didn't want to hear about economic growth numbers. They wanted to hear why their children couldn't get proper jobs, why they had to move overseas to get any decent jobs. So you start with those questions and then you can answer them properly economically. Looking at economics is like sort of it's an answer looking for a question. (laughs) Sorry?
2: Amartya Sen?
1: Oh my famous the other famous Bengali that you're talking about. That's
2: right,
1: yeah. Uh, He's an he economist. He yeah. is, but he's a development economist. And his great claim to fo- uh, fame is in trying to understand how development takes place. And if you actually look at his theories, there are other theories around. There are different ways of developing economies. No two economies develop in the same way. So it's kind of pointless. But we have to decide as a group of people what we want. And then you can use economics as a means to try to achieve that. And there's never any perfect answers. One thing works. And some of the things you've said are eminently sensible, but they may not work in all contexts. So why have this box into which we want to fit our expectations? It doesn't work.
0: That's a very good Thank point you. to end. I'm sorry, we've gone over time and people are glowering at me around the, uh, around the, the opera house. Please, well, Das will be signing this. it Outside, talk to him. Thank you very much for this extraordinary talk this evening. If you enjoyed that talk, please subscribe to our
1: iTunes channel for our fortnightly podcast.